hear these words from Acts chapter 1. I'll share some spotlights at the end of the message this morning, but hear these words as we prepare to look at this final message in an overview of the end times. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 1, says this, in the former account, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach, in the former account, by the way, the author of Acts is referring to the book of Luke. Luke and Acts are meant to be read together. So in the former account, the book of Luke, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken into heaven, after he had given orders, I love that, he had given orders by the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Verse 3, to the same apostles also, after his suffering, he presented himself alive with many convincing proofs. He was seen by them over a 40-day period and spoke about matters concerning the kingdom of God. And while he was with them, he declared, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait there for what my Father has promised, which you heard about from me. Verse 5, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so when they had gathered together, they began to ask him, Lord, is this the time when you are to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he told them, you're not permitted to know the times or the periods that the Father has set by his own authority. Verse 8, but you will But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the farthest parts of the earth. And after he had said this, hear this, dear friends, after he had said this, while they were watching, he was lifted up as a cloud hid him from their sight. And they were still staring into the sky while he was going. And suddenly two men in white clothing stood near them and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand up here looking up into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come back in the same way you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray. Lord, as we get into this last message in sort of an overview of the end times, I am fully aware that the fear mongers and the profiteers and the people who try to fleece the sheep and the people of God have come and again stirred up people. Jesus is coming back in 1988. Jesus is coming back in 1989. Clothing is a mark of the beast. The scan codes are the mark of the beast. All of this fear mongering, which is not the spirit of Jesus, but is the very spirit of Antichrist, a spirit of fear. And so as we look at the last part of this end times message, I pray that we would have a passion to hear what you say about the end times and that we would begin to understand that this is not a source of division, but to be a source of encouragement and of hope, not of fear, for you have not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. And so God, I pray today that your word would break forth into our hearts and our consciousness, that you would do a work of encouragement, and that as we lean into this scandalous doctrine, that as the same Jesus which they saw going up into heaven, we will one day see come again, bringing heaven and earth together as one. So Lord, we pray that you would center us on this, this scandalous thing that is to be hopeful and to draw us to do the work of the kingdom now and to make a difference now on this earth until you come again. Do your work, O Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. And if you're going to say amen, be seated in the presence of the Lord. 
So Felix preached, Andre preached, and it was all good stuff. I could just say, amen, let's go, but you know I can't do that, so <laughs> I can think about it. It's good stuff. Oh, this Sunday we want to look at three views of what's called the millennium, this thousand years that's mentioned in Revelation 20, and then we want to end by talking about the expectation of hope, surprised by hope. And I'm going to be editing a little bit on the fly here, but I want to remind you of a few things as we get started into the teaching time this morning. Look at your neighbor this morning and say, it's going to be okay. Come on, look at your neighbor. Tell them it's going to be okay. You can make it. You can do this. We're in a Baptist church. Baptists are fine with one hour, two hour, three hour, six hour. No, I'm kidding about six, but uh, we can do this. There's a wonderful saying that came out from the Moravians that wonderful Reformation group that said this, in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, love. Would you say that with me? Let's put that on the screen this morning. Say it with me. One, two, three. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, love. The theologian pastor N.T. Wright, or Tom Wright's, writes in his book, Surprised by Hope, that all Christian language about the future, all Christian language about the future is a set of signposts, signposts pointing into a mist. He goes on, he says, this signposts or road signs don't normally provide you with advanced photographs of what you'll find at the end of the road. If you drive to the end of 41st Street or you turn out to the corner here, it just has a sign, 41st Street. It doesn't have a picture about what you'll find if you keep going to the end of 41. But that doesn't mean they are not pointing in the right direction. These signposts are telling you the truth, but the particular sort of truth that can be told about the future. It's pointing in a direction. It's giving us trajectory to where this earth is headed. In the North American Baptist Statement of Faith regarding the end times, we intentionally allow for disagreements on the details regarding how God's good future will come fully into the present. In fact, again, it says this. This is the third Sunday we've read this. The summary version sentence says this. We believe God in His own time and in His own way. Note who is not there. Justin Trudeau's not there. Peter O'Toole's not there. Uh, Jagmik Singh is not there. Who's the other guy? The spoiler guy? The, the, uh, the People's Party guy isn't there. The Green guy isn't there. Uh, the, uh, the President of the United States isn't there. Chairman Xi isn't there. God, in His own time and in His own way, ooh, that gives me, gives me goosebumps. He will do it. He will bring about all things to their appropriate end and establish a new heavens and a new earth. These are the essentials. These are sort of in the dogma of Christianity. And so this day, I want us to review a few words, and then we're going to talk about what's essential and talk about the millennium. So hang with me. I'm going to, it's going to be a faster ride than normal. I apologize. You can watch it again. Thank you for those joining us online as well. There's a few words we just want to review. We've been using the word eschatology. If you have your paper outline, these are listed there, eschatology. Eschatology, which is the study of the end things, the eschatos, this ending of things, eschatology. It's a nice churchy word. We don't always want to teach like $20 words, but some of them are important. In every, every hobby, in every career, in every field, there are $20 words, and it's okay to learn some of those Christian ones. Amen? Amen. Okay, that was weak, but okay. Say it with me. Eschatology. 
This is the study of the last things or the end times. Then there's a whole bunch of words that we lump together here that talk about sort of the subcategories of different ways Christians have wrestled with different passages of Scripture. Millennium is one of them we read in Revelation 20 uh, two Sundays ago. There's different versions of this millennialism. What do we do with this thousand years that shows up once in the Revel- book of Revelation? There's a premillennial view. There's a postmillennial view. There's an amillennial view. There's moderate preterism. In fact, the current term premillennialism doesn't even show up in the early church. That should tell you something about some of the novelties that we've heard in the last 200 years. Some other words you hear about the end times, and I'm just going to throw them out there. We're not going to cover all of them today, thanks be to God. Uh, Dominionism is one. Dispensational premillennialism is a type of premillennialism that has been popular, particularly in the last hundred years or so. The rapture is another word we hear, the rapture, based on a certain interpretation of 2 Thessalonians 4.14, I believe. The rapture. And in the rapture, there's a disagreement. Is there a one-stage rapture or is there a two-stage rapture, if you believe, in that particular doctrine? We'll touch on that today, hopefully. There's the imminent return, and this is something that all Orthodox little old Christians believe, that Jesus could return at any time. So any end times theology that tells us that we are not to have an expectancy is probably already suspect. That if the Lord decides today the heavens and the earth could become one, he could decide this minute before the end of this service that the new creation could break in now. That could happen now, this imminent return. But what we do with that, whether that's an encouragement or whether that's a fear thing, is a whole other conversation, right? Some people use that as a fearful thing versus a glorious thing. The parousia, the presence, the coming of Jesus, this is another uh, New Testament word that's used that means the coming or the presence of the royalty. That's the language Paul uses in Thessalonians, by the way. Maranatha, Aramaic, come Lord. Last of our vocabulary words this morning is the the word of civil religion, which in the Bible, the civil religion, the thing where it takes either to co-opt authentic faith or crush it, the thing of empire that empires use to dominate when they co-opt whatever local religion it may be, that's civil religion. And then the language for those empires is Babylon or Rome is the language used in Old Testament, New Testament. These are the governing structures that align themselves against the ultimate lordship of Jesus, of God, of the servant of the Lord, the Christ Messiah. So Babylon and Rome. And then we also introduce the concept of the beast in Revelation, this idea of Uh, The beast in the first century was Nero. In fact, his name was that uh, gematria where you use the letters equal numbers in certain languages, and 666 was Nero. Nero was the original beast, and all of the story, in fact, he was called the beast by other commentators within the first century, and historians looking back, he was called the beast. That was his title because he was a horrific, horrific person and did evil, evil things. And so he was the beast, and he also persecuted the church. But there's, with some of these things, there's a sense that there might be a double meaning, too, that there's a future uh, version of this as well, that as the world moves towards its end, that there will be other antichrist-like things empowered by this beast, which is connected to the dragon, and the dragon, of course, is Satan, the great evil and foe of God. And so Satan has the beast, and there's a secondary beast. It's actually an unholy trinity that John uses in his language in the book of Revelation about this. But this imagery is all meant to point us towards evil that is at war against God and against Christ. And so we have this language as well. And then finally, I want to leave us with the image of the Lamb. And these are all words about the end times that you will want to go explore later. The Lamb. The Lamb in Revelation and in Scripture and in John's writing is Jesus. 
Jesus is referred to as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the one who takes on all of the brokenness, all of those things from all time on himself, and he uses that imagery of the Lamb to say what God has done in Christ on the cross. And the Lamb imagery, we could spend many, 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 we could spend three years unpacking the imagery of the Lamb. But at the end of the day, in the apocalypse, we are followers of the Lamb, the crucified and risen God, the one who appears in Acts, the one who showed up to the apostles after his crucifixion, the one who caused all of them who followed and then unfollowed when he was crucified and they thought game over, but something happened in between and those, after those three days, he appeared to these witnesses, up to 500 and more eyewitnesses, and that changed everything. That's why we're here 2,000 years later, because the Lamb who was slain rose again because death could not defeat the one who held the keys of life and death, ultimate love. And so when we follow Jesus, we are following the Lamb. That imagery is the imagery within the New Testament and certainly a lot in the book of Revelation as well. So these are words to be aware of and know that on some of these things, they're primary things and some of them are secondary as we talked about last Sunday and I geeked out, really geeked out on that. We have those concentric circles. Jesus, the cross, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his teaching stand at the center of all Orthodox churches. And if you put anything else in that center other than Jesus' life, teachings, death, and resurrection, you become a heretic. When something secondary gets put in that circle that should not be secondary, it becomes heresy. Now, we use that word and we throw it out a lot, especially in Baptist land. We like to throw that word out. Oh, that person's a heretic because they're an Arminian or a Calvinist. No, they're not. That's in those outer circles. That's not in the center. Amen? Bible-believing Christians say we will wrestle with those things where Scripture and we wrestle and the church has wrestled, but there are some things that the church has declared have been central for 2,000 years. In fact, before the Bible, we had those baptismal creeds, which we begin to see written into New Testament, and those early church councils restate some of those creeds to remind us of what is at the center. When we say the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed or a modern language version of them, we are affirming what is at the center and we're also declaring what is not at the center. And note at the end of the Nicene Creed, it says this. I know I'm fired up. Are you okay? I know we're late. Are are we good? Come on, give me some sign. I need to know, you know, I got saved in a Pentecostal church. I just need to know you have a pulse. Are we awake? Say yes or raise a hand or, okay. Well, for the five of us that are in this together, let's keep going. All right. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I love you all, love you all. The creed ends in saying this, that we believe that he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead at the center. This is at the center. He will come again. So what are, ooh, stuff's falling out of the pulpit. Must be a sign. Um, So what are the core things that all orthodox, evangelical, Jesus-centered Christians are united on? Uh, Number one, if you're following on the outline, where we all agree, Jesus will return to earth one day. The second coming, the parousia, he will come again, and he will fully defeat all evil. The end of Revelation, the last chapters of Revelation have not happened. All Orthodox Christians believe. So we say that we know that he will come again one day, and evil will be fully vanquished. The second thing that we all affirm is the general bodily resurrection of all who have ever lived. They will all be raised 
This is something Jesus taught in his earthly ministry. This is something the New Testament authors reiterate, and this is reiterated in the book of Revelation, and and it is said again and again and again. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15 and Thessalonians 4, uh, other places as well. Colossians talks about this, this new constitution that there will be a physicality in the life to come. And some of us have bought into this ethereal, in fact, the song we sang today, Lots of good stuff, and I loved it, and I sang it, all of that. But the reality is, when the end comes, when the end of all things come, we don't get spirited away to heaven. The language of Revelation, the language of Paul, the language of Jesus, the language of Peter is this, that there is a realm of creation that we are a part of, but there is also the heavens right now, which has some materiality to it where Jesus dwells. But in the end, those two things come together. Right now, they overlap in some way, and they interact with one another. But in the end, heavens and earth become one, and there's a new physical, spiritual, enmeshed reality. Add no more decay, no more corruption, no more disease. The lion will lay down with the lamb, and this becomes the new thing. So when Jesus comes and when the general resurrection happens, it is the new thing has come and the old thing is done. There is a distinct junction in time between the old and the new. There will be no confusion. And all people who have lived will Bodies will be reconstituted, and sometimes people say, well, what about if I got cremated? I believe that if God can raise the dead, he can reconstitute whatever he needs to from the old matter into the new body, into the new thing, he can do it. Amen? He can handle it. So if you want to sprinkle me, my dear wife, wherever, you know, it's fine. Or if you want to, you know, put me in my bones in an ossuary box, it's fine. Whatever you want to do with me, because he can handle it. Amen? That's if I go first. If I keep preaching too long, I might go first. (laughs) The third thing that all believers, we say that we will reign with Christ forever, that there will be something we do in this new heavens and new earth, and that those who refuse love will be separated from God's presence. How they're separated, that is another lots of secondary and third level issues with that. But that in God's presence, there is no more evil, there is no more anti-love, there is no more of that. And in fact, Miroslav Wolf in his wonderful book, Exclusion and Embrace, talks about without justice and and truth that there cannot be um, true embrace. And so in eternity, there's the judgment of God as well. So what do Orthodox Christians reject? Well, again, we reject any understanding or any view that the return of Jesus is only figurative or mythological. We affirm that it is a literal, visible, physical thing, that it, just as he came the first, he will come again, like it says in Acts here where we read, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up? The same Jesus who's been taken up will come back in the same way. Think about that. The second thing that we also reject as Orthodox Christians is that there is not a decisive or undeniable break in the universal history, that there will be a clear, we will know, there will be no confusion, the old and the new. There, we will be absolutely clear on that point. Now again, we may see that people over time have wrestled with other things, but these are the core things. These are the things we hang on to. In fact, one early church father in the second, second, second century, Justin Martyr, he had a version of premillennialism. Of course, they didn't use that word at the time. And he said this, though. He said, I and others who are right-minded, look at that, he was being feisty, imagine that, pastor being feisty, Christians at all points, are assured that there will be a resurrection of the dead. And he believed in the thousand years, a literal thousand years in Jerusalem, he said, which will then be built, adorned, and enlarged as the prophets in Ezekiel and Isaiah and others have declared. And then he said this, at the same time, 
Second century church fathers said this, he refused to make these secondary eschatological end times things a test of Christian orthodoxy. And he added this, he said, many though who belong to the pure and pious faith and are Christians think otherwise. Stanley Grins in the Millennial Rays reports this. So even in the early church fathers, they were making these primary and secondary delineations into the second century as well. Okay, a few more things. Let's talk about this millennial thing for a second here. Um, but let me pause and breathe. We need to remember that the things when we talk about the millennium, what I'm going to talk about for just a minute or two here, and then we're going to end with talking about our glorious hope, um, is not a primary doctrine. The millennium is not a primary doctrine. How you interpret Revelation 20, particularly those first 10 verses about the thousand years, is not a primary doctrine. Why? Well, I'm going to unpack that in a second. But to give you the Cliff Notes version, because the book of Revelation is an apocalypse. Say it with me, apocalypse. Apocalypse. It's a type of writing. It's a literary genre that is intentionally using hyperbole and exaggeration and fanciful images. For example, even in that passage, it says saints and will be tied up for a thousand years with a lock and a chain. Now, do you read that there's the Satan, this physical malevolent, this spiritual malevolent being is going to have a physical chain attached to him and that's going to hold him down with a lock and key? See, that is imagery, right? That chain is meant to be some sort of binding, but it's not saying that it's literal. Well, we need to zoom that out to the whole book of Revelation. The language for most of it, not all of it, the first part is epistle, a letter, the first two chapters, first three chapters, but it's used as imagery to express these things that are so beyond our capacity to understand. And so John is having this vision, and so we need to understand that why there's debates about it is because it, you can do violence to the Bible if you turn things into literal texts that were never meant to be read literally, right? Oh man, now I'm going to seminary class 101 here. Okay, there's some stuff in Scripture that we need to understand the genre of it, the writing, the type of writing it is, is poetic. It is not meant to be taken literally, and if you take it literally, you actually do violence to the Word of God. Amen? We don't want to do that. When I ask, what kind of literature, what, what, is, what is the Holy Spirit inspired? What is this thing there? So we need to understand, that's why there's debates on stuff like this, and why in church it has not been declared primary or center doctrine, is our view of the millennium. So in Revelation 20, there's a passage that talks about this thousand-year reign of Christ, and there's three general views about this thousand years, three general views. If you're following along on your outline, this views of the millennium. Very quickly, number one is premillennialism. Say it with me, premillennialism, premillennialism. There will be a thousand-year reign of Jesus on earth following his return. A thousand, so that's what premillennialism says. There's going to be a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on earth following his return. Many in the early church believe this. It's something called historic premillennialism. And then there's a subcategory. And just chill with me. I know I'm geeking out. Some of you are loving this and some of you are like, oh, dear Lord, shoot me now. Okay, no, no, this is Canada. We don't do that. The second version of it is called dispensational premillennialism. And there's varieties even of these things. So we could go down the rabbit hole with this. And the, the, the difference with the dispensational versus the historic we'll talk a little bit more about, but dispensational talks about this idea of strict dispensations, and dispensational premillennials is primarily fired up about the role of Israel, which is a whole other sermon. But basically the concern is that this idea of Israel, the, 
nation of Israel as God's timepiece is a big thing in varieties of dispensational premillennialism. And again, we'll, we can bracket that for a moment. The second view of millennium is the amillennialism. Say it with me, amillennialism. Amillennialism, meaning no millennium. Augustine in 5th century, for example, this idea that there is no literal thousand-year period, but it's a symbol of Christ's reign overall. And amillennialism looks at this idea of Christ being resurrected in heaven. In fact, the language of the New Testament says that he's enthroned right now. But his rule is not fully uh, established in the sense uh, on this earth as is, and that we live in between the times. So there's amillennialism. And in fact, we had a nice little graph that we handed out last Sunday. It's still in the foyer, if you want, that breaks down these positions. And then there is finally post-millennialism. Say it with me, post-millennialism. Post-millennialism. And that was really strong after the Reformation. A thousand-year reign of peace will happen, but Christ will not return until that happens. So basically, the pre means that he comes before the thousand years. The ah means thousand years is figurative or it is manifest in different ways. Post means that he comes after this thousand-year reign. And now all of this, by the way, there's subcategories and varieties of this, but all of these, by the way, are only found in one passage in the Bible. Another Biblical Studies 101, a little tidbit for you today, know the genre, number one. Number two is this, if something is mentioned only once in Scripture, if it's only mentioned once, then we need to ask and look at all of the other texts that speak to the same issue. If it's only mentioned once, we need to ask, why is it only mentioned once, and what else is going on? And so this also tips you off about this thousand-year thing, again, why it's not primary, why it's in the third level of circles of importance about what do we do with this thousand years. So let me just give you a little more about this. Say, so pastor, which one is right? Well, I'm the kind of pastor who's going to say this to you. We agree to disagree in love. And I see strengths and weaknesses in every one of those positions. The biggest weakness is if you make it primary. And I want us to be a Bible-teaching, wrestling church that is leaning and growing. And that means that when there are issues where Bible-believing Christians have debated uh, vigorously over the years and it's not in a primary statement of belief, we're going to say, let's agree to disagree in love. I was raised in a, post, a dispensationalist, premillennial kind of Pentecostal church. And so we had these prophet guys come in and they say, the Antichrist, like I've said, that he had it down. He is, you know, I, I don't need to repeat that statement again. We had these guys come in and they had these charts and then eventually became PowerPoints. They were the old slides and then they became the PowerPoints and, and they named all the characters and actors and you know what? Almost every one of them is wrong and dead. So that has given me a lot of check on dispensational premillennialism. And a lot of them used fear and manipulation to get people to follow Jesus. So for me, that idea of being in a church where the pastor said the clock is ticking, and, I, and I, there's a time for that because we are emotional people. There's, I mean, there's a line, but there is a line. But this idea of trying to scare us into belief. And I look at when Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. And Jesus' language to Nicodemus was not trying to scare him about the end times. He didn't give him a story about one will be, he, he didn't do that parable with Nicodemus. He said to Nicodemus, he said, you must be born again. And he says, this is a spiritual thing. You must be born again. How can I enter my, womb, my mother's womb again? Again, problem when you make literal things, figurative things literal. You do violence to the word of God. Or deny the literal things that are clear. It goes the other way too. 
And he says, for God so loved the world. He didn't say, God's trying, I want to scare you, Nicodemus. I want to put fear in you. I want to put anxiety in you. I want to put grief and despair. And he said, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish. And he's talking about the second death, the ultimate death. He said, will not perish, but will have life eternal. For he did not come into the world to judge the world. Oh, but he has come to display the outrageous love of God. Fear will only get you so far. Fear will get you into deconstruction real fast when you begin to see the nonsense and the manipulation, but love will get you all the way. Amen. Preach it, little sister. She's telling me, land the plane, pastor. I know, I know, I know. So these millennial views, they have different support, different arguments. Again, premillennialism, this idea that we need to do something literally with that thousand years. The interesting thing about premillennialism, it's the only view that, if, that says there's going to be two raptures. It reads 1 Thessalonians and reads things into it that I would argue and many biblical scholars would argue aren't there. That there's a time when Jesus comes halfway down, we go up and go into this heavenly realm with him who are believers alive at that time, and then Jesus is like, eh, I'm not going to go all the way into the city, I'm going back up, and he takes us with him, and then he hangs out for a thousand, you know, and then things happen, tribulation happens, bad seven years happen again, taking things literally, figuratively, bad seven years happen, and then he's going to come back, and when he comes back the second time, so we got two comings of Christ in premillennialism, uh, he got two comings, or, or, or dispensational premillennialism, two comings of Christ, which again is implying things that aren't actually written there. Um, And then he comes back twice, and then he's going to kick butt and take names. And then you've got the Left Behind series, and you've got the 1970s Thief in the Night razor buzzing in the the sink as the woman's uh, uh, partner has been taken away, and you've got put the fear and all of this craziness. And then you're trying to figure out, well, how does Israel fit into this? Which Israel, God has a plan and a purpose for Israel. But the two problems with that is that There's a view of Israel on one side. There's a hyper-reformed theology that says Israel is completely replaced by the church. I reject that. But then there's the dispensational premillennial side that says Jesus doesn't even really matter for Israel until the very end of this clock. And if you read the rest of the New Testament, you know that's heresy as well. We see Paul has a hope for redemption for ethnic Israel. But we need to, and we are called to love all people and, and certainly deal with prejudice and all that, but sometimes the church falls into these ditches avoiding these, when the, what the text talks about. But premillennialism, historic premillennialism is something I could really say, I can see that. The second one, again, working towards and waiting for the coming reign was the post-millennial view that a thousand years have happened, the church is going to do progress, and this was really, really uh, in favor about 150 years ago, post-millennialism. That the church is going to work on earth and we're going to take over politics and we're going to solely through science and Jesus and all of this, we're going to create a wonderful utopia. And and in fact, civil rights was highly influenced by that, which is a really good thing, by the way. A lot of great things happen from a post-millennial view that we are here to begin to usher in the kingdom of God, that we are part of the ushering in that is post-millennial view. So it'll be a thousand years where things will get better and better and better and better and better. And then finally, Jesus is going to say, hey, by my spirit, you did all these things. Now I'm coming in the flesh. Now that you've got the place cleaned up for me. That's sort of post-millennial view. Well, you can see how that went sideways when you got into World War I and World War II. All of that optimism of science and progress 
And then also the racism that happens with science and progress and all of those things that happen and all of the destructive wars and, and violence. And we see today, uh, you know, the race to do nuclear subs in Australia and all of that. For post-millennial, it gets really hard for us to believe. But some people still believe post-millennial view, especially in the States. They're called New Apostolic Reformation or Dominion Christians. They believe that we are there to, and the we meaning the church is there to bring the dominion of God into politics and government. Well, we've seen that go sideways every time the church gets in bed with politics. The bastard child is violence again and again and again. So when you go to the ballot box, I, I'm landing it, I promise. One more, five more minutes. When you go to the ballot box tomorrow, you're not, you're not going to usher in the kingdom of God by that ballot. Try to choose people that line with ethics of Jesus. But you know with all those candidates, depends which ethics are we talking about. Maybe read the Sermon on the Mount before you vote. But remember that none of them is the coming of Christ. None of them will usher in the kingdom to come. The Father in his time will do that and Jesus will. And at that time, all of these political actors, all of them, their reigns will end when the King of Kings comes. Post-millennial view. Amillennial, let me just talk about that and then redemption of our bodies. In fact, redemption of our bodies we can talk about uh, next Sunday when we have a special Q&A Sunday. But the amillennial view, and this is the symbolic thousand-year conquest of Satan view. And this view says there will need be no literal thousand years. And in fact, many biblical scholars affirm this view and that it is meant to be read as a symbol of Christ's rule and reign, symbolic language. And it also is because Jesus tells us, like in John 5, 28, that when he comes and the general resurrection happens, everyone is going to be resurrected. There will not be a first stage resurrection and second stage resurrection. You see, the thing is, when Jesus comes, and N.T. Wright talks so wonderfully about this, when he comes, it is game over for the creation as it is. The minute he begins to bring heaven and earth together, there is no going back. It is a done deal. The new heavens and the new earth, the Jerusalem, the city of God descends and the earthly become one. These two realms become one. There is no taking back. There is no do-over. There is no mulligan. It is a done thing. When the king returns, he's returning and he's not leaving. And that would be definitely something where we wrestle with, he's not going to do this halfway thing. And that's an amillennial view. And I can certainly see the strengths in that view too. Second Peter talks about this, the day of the Lord, when Jesus comes, will be like a thief. The new creations and the new heavens and the new earth. When Paul talks about this in Romans 8, the final restoration of all creation, there is no thousand-year reign mentioned. In fact, the thousand-year reign is mentioned nowhere else in New Testament on all of the end times passages. In 1 Corinthians 15, in the resurrection, when all things are finally handed over to Christ and he destroys every ruler and every authority and power that is bent on evil, there is no going back. So those that are amillennial would say this, there's no clear teaching of a thousand-year reign, nor, nor of two distinct resurrections, nor of two returns of Christ. And since Revelation is an apocalypse full of symbols, there's no reason to expect a literal interim reign where Jesus sort of halfway comes back, reigns on the earth with some of the saints, and then there's a new, like, you really have to do a lot of interesting gymnastics. And people do, and it's possible to get there, so I, I don't rule it out. But I do rule out saying I'm going to die on the hill of which one. So finally, let me summarize all that. Amillennials agree with the premillennials against the postmillennials. 
Ah, millennials, no millennium agree with the pre-millennials against the post-millennials. The Lord will return at any time and don't expect much progress. Ah, millennials agree with post-millennials against pre-millennials. I know that's it's confusing, but we'll get there. And the attempt to reconcile Revelation 20 with the rest of the New Testament by reading two resurrections and two judgments separated by a thousand years is convoluted and unnecessary. So what is the supporting argument? The early church had a type of premillennialism, but they didn't have two raptures. The historic premillennialism was there will be this thousand-year reign, but when the rapture, when Jesus comes, there's no like halfway coming. He's coming all the way, and that's it. And this reign is instituted, and we will live through whatever we live through. And so the study of end times, again, we want to remember this, that we do not... If you get anything out of what I just said, we do not make the thousand-year reign the primary issue. And if you dig into everything I just said this morning, and you begin to study this within church history, you'll realize, wow, Christians have not agreed on that. And that is okay, amen? It's okay. What we do agree on is the redemption of our bodies and the blessed hope that is coming that he is coming to transform, not like an invading spaceman, but from this heaven's realm, which is some type of material, the presence of God, and the created realm that God had that we live in right now, that the end times, these things come together as one. And there may be tribulation in that, by the way. There may be persecution. The church may experience trials, and again and again, that may happen. I think probably the least likely scenario is the post-millennial scenario that says things are going to get better, 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 and everything, and then, whoa, you know, I, I don't know, that seems a little, too, a, little, a little too crazy for me. But if you're there, fine, guess what? Not a primary issue. We can still worship together, serve together. Just don't turn it into a primary issue. Then it becomes heretical. Same thing with premillennialism. Same thing with dispensationalism. Same thing with uh, historic premillennialism or amillennialism. Jesus comes to transform. I'll give you one more quote and we'll pray. The early Jews and Christians, remember early Christians were influenced, obviously formed out of Judaism. And the expectation of the Messiah in Judaism was that there would be a single coming of Messiah and then all would change at that point and it would be a political kind of thing. And so when Jesus came and declared he is Messiah, and oh, by the way, he's also God by everything that he did, and then died on a cross, they thought, well, that's it, game over, and those that were following him, because they had no expectation of a resurrection and of the second coming of Christ. But when he rose again, the unfollowers refollowed. And the church expanded because Jesus was there in our midst. And then he taught these things while he was there before he ascended into heaven. The ascension is an essential doctrine that we believe on this resurrection and ascension that bodily Christ enters into this other realm, this other space that God has where the material is different and does not decay, where time is different. That Jesus enters in that at the ascension and promises that he will come again to bring these things together. That was their early hope. That was their hope. He could come at any time. In fact, N.T. Wright says this, the entire sense of God's future for the world 
stands on the belief that the future has already begun to come forward to meet us in the present, and that is the sending of the Holy Spirit. And he says this, this is what we find in Jesus himself in the teaching of the early church. They modified but did not abandon the Jewish eschatological end times beliefs that they already shared. And Jesus appearing will be, for those of us who have known and have loved him here, will be meeting face to face with someone we have only known by letter or telephone or even perhaps email or text. And the main truth of the New Testament is not that we will find him or go to him, but that one day he will come back to us. He will come again. He will come as a judge. He will come as a healer for all nations. Stand with me this morning and let's prepare to leave this house. I could spend a whole year preaching on the end times. In fact, let me tell you two things. If you want to read some of the best books that I've read recently, and these are also audio books, by the way, for those of you that are not readers, and you can find some of these lectures on YouTube on these books. The first book I would recommend, if you're only going to read or listen to one, is this one by N.T. Wright, Surprised by Hope, Rethinking Heaven, the Resurrection, and the Mission of the Church. Excellent, excellent, excellent biblical study here on all of the passages regarding the hope of the end times. The second one I would recommend, read, listen to, is Reading Revelation Responsibly. In fact, there's small group questions at the end of every chapter by Michael Gorman, and I've included in your, new, in your sermon inserts this Sunday and last Sunday some summaries of how to read Revelation Responsibly from this book. Reading Revelation Responsibly, Uncivil Worship and Witness, Following the Lamb into the New Creation. So here's a summary before we sing. I mean, not the summary. This is the land, the plain questions. Don't die on the wrong hill. Say, look at your neighbor and say, don't die on the wrong hill. Okay, say it like you mean it. Don't die on the wrong hill. Check yourself. Learn the creeds and our statement of beliefs. They will keep you from exalting secondary and tertiary, that's a $20 word, third level, tertiary issues and doctrines above the core. Get clear on the center. If we want to have a healthy and growing church again and again, get clear on the center because there are, Jesus will say in the last days, there will be people that will say, the Messiah is here and the Messiah is there and the Antichrist is there and this is there and that is there. And he said, don't believe them. And yet we bought 1988 reasons and then 1989 reasons and Harold Camping and then the weird spaceship cult. Jesus said, don't believe him. Only the Father knows. And Christians disagree. Don't die on the wrong hill. I love you. I don't want you to die on the wrong hill on the last day's things. Secondly, remember that he could come at any time, the imminent return of the king. Matthew 25, therefore stay alert because you do not know the day or the hour. And stay alert is not to be fear-mongering and not to be bunkering down and not to be buying a bunker in my home state of lovely South Dakota, which people are selling luxury doomsday bunkers. If you want one, talk to me. I'd get a percentage of that maybe. I know, I'm just kidding. I'm not. Be ready, and he says... Keep your lambs trimmed and ready. Be ready for the bridegroom to come at any time. Because when he comes, though, it's a celebration. It's goodness. It's hope. It's joy-filled. And be ready means serve and love and love your neighbor outrageously and do the teachings of Jesus Christ because the master wants to find us busy doing the Sermon on the Mount, not busy building the bunker in South Dakota. Jesus, help us. Be ready and be working. Keep your lambs trimmed and ready. And finally, I say this, to be continued, 
Our lamb has conquered. Let us follow him. N.T. Wright has some great theology, but N.T. Wright, I'm not following N.T. Wright. Follow Jesus. I'm an okay pastor. To hear Andre speak, boy, I was like, who is that guy? I don't know who that guy is, but he needs to be our pastor. (laughs) But you know, you follow me as I follow Christ, you follow Jesus. Amen? We don't follow the hip and happening mega church. Ken Shigematsu, wonderful man of God. We don't follow Ken. Mark Clark, we don't follow Mark Clark. We don't follow David Jeremiah. We don't follow John MacArthur. We follow Jesus and we wrestle with the Orthodox Christianity throughout the 2,000 years. We submit ourselves to that first and foremost. We submit ourselves to the Lamb. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for each person here today. And God, thank you for these people's patience this morning. Oh, Lord, bless them with ears to hear and minds to forget whatever they need to forget in order to hear what they need to hear. (laughs) And God, I pray that this church, Pilgrim, Emmanuel, together, not together, better together, whatever it becomes, Lord, that we would be a place where we put the Word of God above our preferences and predilections and all this craziness, Lord, that we put the Word of God above that and that we wrestle with that and we understand the ultimate Word of God is Jesus, that He is the, you are, Lord Jesus, the authoritative, infallible, inspired Word of God. You are the Logos. You are the wisdom of the Father. You are the Sophia. You are the one who has lived and by the Spirit is present now but will come again physically and visibly one day. We follow you, the victorious Lamb who was slain. We follow you. And God, we bind all of the spirit of division and strife and disunity over second and third level things that should never be exalted into primary position. That is the work of Antichrist because it distracts from the Christ. And everything that is about fear and manipulation, we name and we want to name again and again. God, help us not. We affirm emotions, but oh God, may we not be a place where we take the blessed hope and turn it into a living nightmare. And God, may this be a place where people flourish. Flourish in your love and come alive in following Jesus. We pray these things in your name.